Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is May the 28th, 2019, and this is episode 2447 of the Survival Podcast, 2447. It is a Tuesday, but of course we took yesterday off because it was Memorial Day. And uh, so I'm going to do a listener feedback show today, usually what we do on Mondays, because the volume of email that I get on a weekly basis for content for this show is really big. And just to be honest, there was a ton of really interesting stuff that came in this last week, and I think we're going to have a great show today. And if I skip a week of this, then it builds up, and a lot of stuff that would have gotten on the air doesn't get on the air. So I don't want that to happen. Here's what we got today lined up for you. We got... The weekly community revitalization segment, we're going to talk about the power of volunteers this week, what you need to know about the Jack's Liberty Wallet, and I'm going to give you my thoughts on the cryptocurrency market in general. Uh, this wasn't feedback. This is something that just kind of popped up this weekend. I'll tell you about it when we get to it. Uh, we're going to, I have a question. I'm talking to your kids about the importance of telling the truth. I told a story about what happened with my son a long time ago. The listener's having a hard time getting his kids to be truthful, and I'm going to talk to you about my thoughts on trying to convey the importance of that to your kids. Um, next, we're a little, real quick little segment and some products recommended on using fertilizer injection systems. I won't talk a tremendous amount about that because I don't do it. If I don't do something, I tend not to talk too much about it, but it is a valid technique, and it works really, really good. And uh, a guy wrote in with some products that he's using, and I'll tell you a little bit about that. And I have links to them in case you want to use them in your gardening. Um, we've been talking a lot about colleges shutting down programs, and, and my forecast that you will not recognize the education system in 10 years. And I would say about nine years, because it's about a year that I've really been saying we've got a 10-year timeline on this. And uh, I've been showing you little incremental things you know this college is cutting out these programs this college is eliminating these degrees but they've been in drips a little drip and a little drip and a little drip and a little drip and it's real easy to write that off just now we're starting to see clusters i've got over the last two weeks three articles on on, on schools downsizing the scaling things back and eliminating things like entire Programs like the like one college has eliminated its entire MBA program, and we're going to talk about when you start seeing these clusters, what comes after that. But I'm not going to beat this subject up too much. I've talked about it a lot, right? And you can only talk about something so much before it's like, yeah, you said this already. I really want to use this to introduce an alternative to you called Praxis at DiscoverPraxis.com. It's something I stumbled on a couple weeks ago. And I think these are the types of programs that are going to change the face of education, do it for a fraction of the cost, and bring far more value to many people than they could ever get out of university. Uh, so we'll talk about that. Got a new seed source for you and some thoughts on that. Question about using glass fish tanks for indoor aquaponics. I'll, sell, I'll tell you the, the issue with that for most fish tanks and a workaround. And then I got a question on brewing and venting and distilling. Person wants to know what's the difference between mash, wash, and wort. And we'll talk a little bit about 
what a must is and some other things. But in the end, we're going to say is don't overthink all this. Some questions on buying gold and silver as a person that's never done it before. And a question on dealing with fire ants uh, the organic way. And it's a pretty easy thing to do, and we'll talk about all of that and more in just a moment. Before we do, let's talk about our two sponsors of the day today. Safecastle Royal is the original survival podcast sponsor available at safecastle.com. You go there, it's like a superstore for everything prepping, from the practical to the tactical, guns to gardens and everything in between. And they have a program. It's a really cool program. It's, uh, it's, it's $29 a year. And that gives you discounts to pretty much everything that they sell. Guess what? You can get it for free. As a TSP listener, if you're a member of my membership program, you get their membership for free. Not for a year, for life. You can't even buy a lifetime membership at SafeCastle anymore, but I can get it to you for free. You can learn more uh, by going to SafeCastle.com and checking out all the cool stuff they have. You might wonder why I call them the original survival podcast sponsor. They were first. They were so early on in wanting to sponsor this show. We're talking over a decade now. That when they came to me, I said, not yet. And I said, what do you mean not yet? We want to sponsor your show. I said, I don't have enough listeners. I don't want to take your money until I can deliver. That's That's been my philosophy of business forever. Uh, about six months after that, I had you know, a couple 3,000 listeners and contacted Vic Rontoliver and said, I'm ready to roll. He said, we're still ready to do it. And we set everything up and we brought them in as the first sponsor. Ten years now. Ten years as a sponsor in a podcast world. I don't... If you, here's what I want you guys to do. If anybody knows anybody that's had a sponsor stay with them on a podcast for 10 years or more, let me know who they are. I think I have the only one. And I think I have a couple that are getting close to being number two and three and four. I don't believe that, in general, sponsorship relationships last this long in the world of podcasting. Our people are loyal because you guys are good about supporting them. Remember that. Next up, let's talk about loyal. Not as long because it took a little longer to meet each other, but Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason and his website, Directive21.com, these guys have been a sponsor for over eight years, easily over eight years. Man, Jeff is the guy that when, when I was looking for someone in this space, in water filtration, because it's important, once I understood who this guy was and his dedication to his customers, it was a no-brainer to bring him on. You can get a Berkey anywhere, but there's only one Berkey guy, and that is the man himself, Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason, Website, Directive21.com. He has a lot of other cool stuff for your prepping needs. But I'll tell you what. I love my Berkey. I have been a Berkey owner for almost as long as Jeff's been with us. I bought one not soon after that. And I will never give up being a Berkey owner. It, it looks great. makes water taste great. makes water safe to drink. Remember with water, too. Like, everybody in the prepper space is like, well, I want a water filter in case the shit hits the fan. The shit can hit the tap water. Okay, the shit can hit the well water on any given day, and you don't know it until you get sick. That's a big reason to be filtering at least your drinking water. It really is. Check him out today again, directive21.com. He does have a discount for members of the MSB. With that, let's talk about, you know, we've been saying first, first show of the week, we're going to talk about community revitalization. Uh, getting small communities to to pick up steam and, and start to build uh, local economies and make it a place where people want to live so that young people don't leave. And so in some cases, a lot of these places, enough people have already left, we need to attract some new people to these towns and make them want to be there. So Christina, who kind of really got this whole thing going with her first email to me about this uh, with, with cash mobs, and I just thought this would be a good thing to kind of explore and see how long we can run it before we run out of ideas. Uh, sent me a great idea. She said, another topic for your Community Building Monday segments, volunteering. I've read multiple articles about loneliness and how it's become more and more prevalent. 
Volunteer organizations and groups that foster resilience or generate community pride can impact both individuals and the community as a whole. Things like community gardens, men's sheds, uh, community cleanups, beautification, Arbor Day tree planting, etc. I've included a link to the most recent article I read about loneliness, how volunteerism can combat it. I've also included a link about men's sheds, just because I think they're an awesome idea. They're a twofer. They combat loneliness in older men. And they often work together to build things for their community, like park benches. And they repair things for low-income people in the community, like lawnmowers. So if you've never heard of men's sheds before, then uh, join the club, because I hadn't either. I thought this was really cool. I've got these two articles in the show notes for you to look up. Let's start out with what men's sheds are. So men's sheds are like, you, you find a place to meet. Kind of think of it like... A, a, a smaller version of something like a, um, what, do you, what do you call those things, uh, like a makerspace. You know, maybe a small wood shop or something like that. Maybe it's one guy can donate his, his, his wood shop or whatever. But all these guys get together. And specifically, this started in Australia, and it's been built up around retired uh, older men. So, you know, you're, you're, you're a retired guy, but you're not ready, for, you know, you're not ready to quit. You don't need to work, but you but you kind of want something to do and place to hang out. And instead of hanging out like in a bar or a barber shop or something like that, you know, you have a regular meetup and you go meet and then you do something for the community with that time. Uh, wheelchair ramps and, and other things like that, things that can be built. Uh, and so maybe there's a project-based and a delivery-based side of things. And that's, that's, that's one of the articles that Christina sent. The other articles in Scientific American... And it just talks about no matter who you are, that if you're lonely, volunteering is a way to solve the problem of loneliness. And I think there's there's a lot to that. So let's just talk about volunteering in general for a moment, and then we'll talk about maybe how it could be specifically applied with the intent of revitalizing a community, making it better, making it more exciting. So one of the biggest problems that people have who end up with a loneliness problem is they go inside themselves and everything becomes about them. I hate to kick a person when they're down, but I'm going to tell you it's the dadgone truth. It's absolutely the case that a lot of people that say they're lonely are lonely because they've made a choice to be lonely, even if they don't realize it. And what happens is they become so focused on whether or not what they're going to do is beneficial to them that they end up deciding that it's somebody else's responsibility to do something instead of their own. So they don't know what to do. And if they do look to go out, you know, they end up going shopping or something like that. They're surrounded by people, but no one talks to them. If anybody does, it's a brief conversation. And, and probably with someone they don't have much in, in, in common with. When you go to volunteer, you are guaranteed, if you go to do some sort of volunteer project with other people, people are going to talk to you. You're guaranteed that you're going to have something in common. The thing that you're volunteering to do. You're guaranteed that you're going to do something. You're not volunteering to show up and sit on, on, a, on a rock and, and contemplate your navel. And you're going to get engaged with people, and you're going to be engaged with two different types of people. The other people helping and the people being helped. And I have found that when people get out and do something for someone else, it pulls them out of that state of depression, it pulls them out of that state of loneliness, and it pulls them out of that state of self-destruction, where they are literally creating their own problem even though they can't see it. Because now, well, we went and helped this family, or we went and helped this local business, or we went and helped whatever, 
And all of a sudden, there's a, a feeling of good that comes in. When you help people, it feels good. And then you start thinking, I want that feeling back, so we want to go do it again and again. And it starts to become about how many people I can help. And I think I've seen a lot of people go through this process and they didn't even realize they were helping themselves. And it's, you know, it's six months or a year down the road. They're like, I, they, they actually say that. Like, I didn't realize when I started doing this, the person that I would help the most would be me. And so be, they've become selfish. And because they're selfish, they can't do for themselves. But when they become selfless, they do a lot for themselves. And, I mean, I've, I've talked to people that flat out, they say, I'm not going to go work for free. Well, especially retired people. You know, I love my father-in-law. That's one of the things he said when he was looking for stuff to do. And we're like, well, why don't you go work with Habitat for Humanity? So I'm not working for free. You know, there's, there's a point at which you do have to start thinking about what you can do for other people. And it will come back to you in droves. Now, applying men's sheds, volunteering, etc., to community, community revitalization, what it makes me think is about the amazing Get Shit Done crew that Nicole Sauce has put together in, in, in you know Middle Tennessee. And she was talking about recently how the reason their Get Shit Done crew is so awesome is it's made up of doers instead of takers, and people just kind of show up and go do something somewhere for somebody else. And then they go somewhere else, and they go somewhere else, and it's just and the person that's being done for goes out of their way to make it worth being there. You know, I'm going to throw a pig on the pit or something. And so, if you take that to another level, what you're really talking about with creating local volunteer organizations or finding one and being part of it is creating a get shit done crew that's getting shit done for people that aren't in the group. But this is how groups get bigger. Because when you go do something like that and it's helpful to somebody, they talk about it. Other people want to be involved with it. And most of these little towns and areas have little chambers of commerce and stuff like that. You know, when they talk about uh, wheelchair ramps, you know, what I, I immediately thought of as a Kiwanis Club. Like every single chamber of commerce uh, that I've ever uh, been to has somebody there that's from a Kiwanis Club, and that's a primary thing that they do. If, I, if I'm wrong about that, if it's a different organization, but that's the name that popped up where they do wheelchair ramps for people. Uh, but I've always been involved with chambers that are in larger cities and towns. Smaller towns may not have somebody doing that already. That's a that's an easy one, you know, to figure out who needs that. But, you know, again, I'm not a religious person, but I do understand the power of churches and their communities, And any, any volunteer organization need only reach out to the local churches and temples and synagogues and, and, and what have you and say, hey, this is what we do. Tell us who needs help. And you probably get a list longer than you could ever serve. And that, again, starts to reinforce things. Because you know what? It's one thing when you know, St. John's Methodist Church has a group of people to go do something. Isn't it a lot more powerful when that group is people from that church, people from this temple, people that will never darken the door of a church like myself, all of this diversity coming together and simply using these individual organizations and groups as a conduit for people to find each other. And if you had something like that going on, and I'm, you know, I'm just thinking of the size of town that I grew up in in Pennsylvania. Um, so... I, I kind of grew up split between two towns. My grandparents lived in a place called Minersville, and I actually had lived in a place called Pottsville and went to Pottsville High School. Minersville has a population of around 4,000 people. Uh, Pottsville is a much bigger uh, town, about 13,000 people. 
But towns of this size, a, a group of a dozen or two dozen people committed to doing something to help that community in some way, shape, or form, can have a dramatic impact in not a very long period of time and end up very well known in not a long period of time. I mean, one of the things that was uh, a little unnerving as a kid in, in places like this was if you did something you wasn't supposed to do, before you got home, the news did. And this is before cell phones and cameras everywhere. And it's just Uncle, you know, Uncle Pete got a call from somebody and says, is this your boy? And he said, that's not him, but I know his dad. I'll take care of it. And you got home, and it was already waiting on you. Because that's how, that's how, and I think people that live in larger cities may struggle with understanding exactly what this is like. And I haven't lived in a real small town for, for quite a long time. The last place was a place called Northampton, also in Pennsylvania. Uh, but, I mean, that was early 2000s, and it was still that way there. And I, I think, you know, we may have lost a little bit of that, but it, it can really quick pick up steam and momentum. And I think we should really think about, you know, what could be done if, you put together a volunteer organization in a small town and just start promoting the fact that it's there and its mission and asking for people to get involved. And specifically asking, do you know somebody who maybe is retired or only works part-time or needs something to do, needs to meet people? Because when it comes to, you know, even if you're out of a job, you're out of a job, you're looking for a job. Well, I think your primary job should be applying for jobs. But the best way to get a job is to meet somebody that knows somebody or, or already needs to hire somebody. Well, Again, if you spend your whole day writing resumes and sitting behind a computer screen, you're not meeting anybody. Because it's amazing what happens when you meet people, you talk to people, they know who you are, and they know you're making a sincere effort. And I, I tell you what, you call me and say, Jack, I know you're looking to hire somebody. I met this gentleman, lost his job, and uh, he's looking for an interview. My first question is going to be, Okay, well, how did you meet him? And when you say, well, he's volunteering with us to do blah, 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 blah. So he's out of the job, but he's out working for free to help other people. I want to, I'm not guaranteeing you I'm going to hire him, but I want to interview that person. I am interested in talking to that person. And the number one thing I believe that revitalizes communities and makes communities dynamic and energetic and worth being part of is people communicating with each other, getting out, of the house and looking at people eye to eye and actually communicating with each other. I don't care if it's on a park bench. I don't care if it's at a local bar. I don't care if it's at a local kind of cafeteria, restaurant area. I don't, I don't care if it's picking. I don't care what it is. Getting people to talk. That's why I think community gardens done the right way are so powerful. You get people outdoors talking to each other instead of spreading bullshit on Facebook, and all of a sudden good things start to happen. So that's our that's our segment for community this week. If you'd like to contribute to this, please send me information. Put TSPC in the subject line like anything for a show like this. But specifically tell me, this is my idea or my thought or something I've seen going on to help revitalize local communities. Next up, just real quick, before we go forward, remember, episode 2500 will be here before you know it. And we have the greatest show we've ever done coming up, the 2500th episode of TSP. You call in and tell me all the great and wonderful things in your life that's been brought to you because of the work we do here and from our communities and sub-communities, things you've learned, found out about, people you've met, indirect, third party. I don't care if it had any connection here. Let us know about it. But when you do, instead of doing it like we did, the one-year anniversary show in episode 500, call me a jerk. 
Because, you know, that started to happen. People started calling me, Jack, you're such a jerk. Because of you, there was a storm, and I was prepared. Or, Jack, you're such a jerk. I paid off all my debt. Now I have all this stupid money I don't know what to do with. It started out as a joke. It turned into a thing. So let's run with it. Episode 2500. Call in. Tell me I'm a jerk. Call the jerk hotline. The jerk hotline is 877-644-1345. 877-644-1345. It'd be part of history when you are part of episode 2500. Next up, I want to talk to you about uh, cryptocurrency for a bit. This is something we haven't talked a huge amount about for a while, and we probably should talk about more. Um, we'll start out with something that's important for you all to know. I was pretty am and animate about one of my favorite crypto wallets being the Jax wallet, spelled J-A-X-X, available at jax.io. So I know a lot of this audience uses the Jax wallet. And at the end of 2018, going into 2019, uh, Jax first came out with a beta version and then kind of came out early, early winter, like February, January, somewhere in there, and said basically we're all in on this. This, this wallet's stable. It's better. It's more secure. And said, get the Jax Liberty Wallet. So, of course, I got the Jax Liberty Wallet and started using it. And I did not delete the old classic Jax Wallet from my phone. So I was you know, doing the thing that iPhone owners, and I'm sure Android owners do once in a while, start going through all those screens and all those apps and going, is there anything on here I just don't use anymore? And I saw the Jax Classic app. I had never deleted it. So, you know, I was like, I'm sure it still works. So I opened it up, and it does. And I'll talk about the importance of understanding that in just a second. Um, so I opened it up, and it still works, but a pop-up came up. And basically said, in no uncertain terms, if you have not upgraded to Jack's Liberty, you need to because we are going to discontinue this thing. Now, I don't know what that actually means because I can't see a world in which it goes away. But... It becomes this old thing with no support and no updates. So I don't know that they're really going to I don't see how they would take it away, and I'll talk about that in a second. But basically, when the people that make something tell you something, then you should listen to it. So you should upgrade to Jack's Liberty, and you should do that. And I want to talk a little bit about to you about some more important things around that. So the good news is really easy. You can go to jax.io. I got a link in the article that I wrote about this today. I'll put a link in the show notes to the article. And you can just, for your desktop or whatever, you can just download it off the website. If you're using an Android, you can go uh, to their, their app store. If you're iPhone, you can go to the app store there and download the new app for your mobile version. Um, they're free, they're no charge, whatever. And then if you know, you're an existing Jax user, you, when you open it up, it'll say, do you want to create a new wallet or do you want to restore one? Well, just say you want to restore one. I know that might not quite sound right, but it's what you're doing. And then you're going to have a 12-word backup phrase. It'll just be 12 random words that were part of your original Jack's wallet. If you didn't write these down, you're wrong, but don't worry. As long as you still have the original Jack's wallet, you're good. I'm going to tell you what to do in just a second. You enter those 12 words, and it will import all your all your cryptocurrencies that are on the old wallet to the new wallet. And every, all your money will be there. You can use ShapeShift to convert it from one crypto to another. You can send. You can receive everything that you used to do. Now, I want to talk to you about this backup phrase. If you don't have your backup phrase written down or typed and printed out somewhere secure where it's hard to find and only you know where it is, and then somebody else at least knows how to get to it, I'm going to talk about that in a second. You're wrong. 
And it should be in at least two places. Because if it's in one place and something happens to that one place, maybe you can't get to it. So you should have at least two hard copy backups of that phrase. They should be very well protected. It should be difficult for anybody to tell what they are. I'm going to tell you how, uh, some ways to make them a little bit more secure even if somebody finds them uh, as well. Um, but just take that to heart. The other thing I think you should do is I think you should memorize your phrase. I do not, repeat, do not think you should rely on your memory. You could bump your head. Who knows? But I'm going to tell you an exercise to memorize your phrase that will make it almost impossible for you to forget it. And, and here's what it is. It just takes, takes five weeks to do. It takes five weeks to do. The first week, you memorize the first three words of your phrase. And several times a day, you look at some place where they're written down or whatever, and you read them out loud to yourself. And don't do this in a cubicle with your cubicle neighbor writing down this stuff, figuring out what you're doing. But at least three times a day, repeat those three or four times to yourself, and then take it away and then say them back. So if, if the first three words of your phrase were acre, trees, author, Acre Trees Author. You just say that, reading it, Acre Trees Author, Acre Trees Author. And then put it away and say it again, Acre Trees Author, Acre Trees Author. We're doing the elephant one bite at a time thing here. You do that for a full week. At that point, there's no way you're forgetting those three words. Now you do the next three. So you'd say Acre Trees Author, word one, word two, word three. Well, actually, word four, five, and six. And you do that for a week. Three or four times a day, three or four times each time, reading it, and three or four times without looking at it. Third week, do the next three. I know a lot of you could, in one week, memorize the whole 12. If you do what I'm going to tell you to do here, you will etch these words into your mind. Fourth week, you know what to do. You add the last three words. Now you've got 12. When you get to that point, do all 12 for two weeks. And it will be almost impossible for you to forget those words. It really will. Why is this so important? Let's say the shit does hit the fan. Let's say in your life anyway. Let's say you know, you're getting wiped out by government. I don't know what. People are trying to extort you. I don't know what. At that point, you could delete every copy of the Jack's wallet you own. Somebody could take your phone, look at it. nothing there. Your computer's nothing there. Whenever you get to where you are going and you're trying to put your life back together, those 12 words will just reassign all of that wealth back to you. Now, I don't know how much wealth you're going to have because I like to be very conservative with my crypto investing. Thankfully, though, by being an early adopter, I have a significant amount because it was so cheap when I originally acquired it. So to me, it makes sense to leave that there because it's an asset that nobody can really get unless I do something stupid. And it's completely portable, and I could have literally nothing. You could take everything I own from me, and I could get on a plane, get off that plane in Malaysia, get a hold of any electronic device that would run jacks, pull up jacks, boom, I got it. And my wealth is back to me. It's one of the many things I love about cryptocurrency. So... Again, I don't want you to rely on this memorization and say, I don't need it written down somewhere, I don't need a backup somewhere, whatever. 
but I do want you to do it anyway. Next, it is very important, those of you that are crypto enthusiasts that have significant assets specifically in crypto, that there is someone that understands how to get that money if you die. I should say when you die, because sooner or later you're going to die, right? We all die, and we have not found the secret to immortality yet. But I'm specifically talking about the person who's like 37 years old saying, no, eh, don't worry about dying, I'm good, I love it. No. My buddy, Hal Dodd, went jogging, lived a very healthy lifestyle, one morning came back from a jog, called his wife as he was going into the house, talked to her about how great he felt, how wonderful the day was going to be, closed the door, hung up the phone, had a heart attack and died in the vestibule of his home, and his wife came home and found him, couldn't get the door quite open because he was laying there. You do not ever think you're not going to die. A gravel truck or a heart attack or something like that can get us all. So there needs to be somebody that you have a discussion with. This is where you get the information. This is how you do this, etc. And it might be that you would leave you know, certain instructions. To, if you didn't completely trust somebody with this, I mean, a spouse is obviously best. But then like a child or something, because what if you and your spouse die together? So you might have to leave some sort of way for them to get all the information that they need. Once you're gone, that would be difficult to do while you're alive if you have any concerns. Because people do have their identity stolen by their children. So let's not overly trust people. Um, but that needs to be a plan in place so that if something completely goes off the rails for you, that someone can access that. And it might even be the case that you know, you're incapacitated but you need money. And then they can do that and use that money to help you. So make sure you have a plan of inheritance, of chain of custody for your crypto. Um, because, again, one of the things about crypto is the government doesn't necessarily need to know everything about you in your life, and there's an ability there to transfer wealth very, very anonymously as well. So um, as far as the crypto thing as a whole, I want to tell you guys I think that what I said was going to happen happened exactly the way I said it was going to happen. It just took, it happened. It just took longer than I expected. In Early 2018, late 2017, I said that the, the day of reckoning was coming, and it was worse than I expected, but I said this: the market was going to just get slaughtered. There was too much hype and too much bullshit in it, and that everything would get hit. Again, I had no idea it would get hit as hard as it did. It shocked me as much as it shocked many of y'all. But I also said, when we come out the other side of that, these thousands and thousands of shit coins and shit tokens are going to be washed out and gone. And there's going to be a couple hundred maybe standing and a couple dozen that are really solid projects that really have something going for them. And there'll continue to be new things and innovations, but this idea that we need a 1,000 or 2,000 or 3,000 cryptocurrencies and anybody who wants to can just roll one up and all of a sudden decide it has value, that kind of negates the entire purpose. And that when we came out the other side, instead of seeing like every industry having its own cryptocurrency and something, we're going to see a much more stable world. And that as that occurs and you have market recovery, you're going to go into the true golden age crypto. I can't, I'm not guaranteeing shit, guys. I always say if you wouldn't gamble your money, don't put it in crypto. And I don't gamble, so I have to have to come up with a different way of looking at that. If I wouldn't take my money, and piss it away on a really great weekend of a couple really great dinners with my wife on vacation, I'm not putting it into crypto. That's my litmus. Whatever it is for you. If you go play craps in Vegas, if it isn't money you'd put on the craps table, don't put it in crypto. You got it? 
But I think what we will see in the coming market is going to be more than we had in the past and more than most people get their heads around. Because we are going to eventually get to a point where Bitcoin and other premium cryptos are available in true ETFs. And just on the mathematics alone, the only thing that can do is explode the price. And then when Bitcoin explodes, other cryptos get drug along for the ride. And so I place those into like long-term stable projects like Litecoin and Ethereum, etc., uh, that have been around for almost as long as Bitcoin in, in some instances, that are stable in their own right. They get a lift. Then you've got your, your Bitcoin competitors and offshoots that like, like Bitcoin Cash and, and BSV and stuff like that. And you know how they're going to work out, I don't know. Um, but they get kind of drug along, at least as far as they can go. And then there's, everybody's still fighting to try to take over as king of the mountain. And there's been the hash war and all that, which I think prolonged the recovery. Uh, forced all the recovery, I guess. And then you're going to have your speculative stuff that, that seems to have legs that also comes along for the ride. And my favorite out of all of those is still ARC. And, and the reason I'm such a fan of ARC is it, there's so much you can do, but the activity level and the development going on in ARC and the communication of that is, is better than anything else I've seen. Uh, and I really I, I look at them and I think you know there's no way I can't see Ark returning to five bucks and it's at sixty something cents. So could I be wrong about all this? Yes. I'm just going to say if you forestalled getting involved with cryptocurrency, there was a year and a half. It was really great to do it, but nobody ever wants to get in when the market's down. Now Bitcoin's back up over eight thousand bucks, and basically saying here I am. Everybody was screaming tulip mania and it's over and blah blah blah, and here I am. Here I am, how many years later? Over 10 years, still here, not going anywhere. So if you've not gotten involved and you have some spare money, um, I really recommend that you get started at least with a little bit of Bitcoin. Um, I really recommend that you, you know, 100, 200 bucks, set up a Jack's wallet, go somewhere like Coinbase, buy your Bitcoin, fund it, figure out how to transfer it, start learning about how it works. If you're going to do that, please consider going to my website and using the Coinbase banner on my website. If you do that, you know it doesn't cost you anything extra, and I get 10 bucks worth of Bitcoin. Uh, I'm not saying to do it just because of that. I'm just saying if you're going to do it, then you know it doesn't, it doesn't hurt nothing for you to do that. Uh, with that, let's move on to the next one. But again, make sure that you get the Jack's Liberty Wallet. Uh, if, you, if you're going to be new in crypto, it's a great place to start. And if you already have Jack's, upgrade. Don't you know, I can't see that it it won't stop. I can't see that the old one will stop working, but I don't know. You know, There may be operating system changes or something where it's not compatible anymore. That could be an issue. So please you know, go ahead and do this before it's too late if you already have the existing one. Now, I already got an email from somebody freaking out because they got the, the Liberty wallet and they imported their old wallet to it. And they're like, but my classic wallet still has all the money in it. It's going to, because it's not really in there. The I, I can't get into this today, but your cryptocurrency exists on a chain. The wallet is the way by which you access it. It's not actually in the wallet. It's the access to it is the way to look at it. It's not in there. 
That's why when you have your wallet on your phone, your laptop, and your desktop, it synchronizes all the way across. It's out in the, in the ether of the world. Uh, with that, let's move on to another one. Uh, Jason from PA asked me a question. He said, I know you've shared a few times about the agreement with your son about telling the truth and how that later came into play with a situation involving the police. But I recall one time you told a story in a bit more detail. Do you recall that episode? Recently I observed my son, who will turn 10 this June, being less than honest. Uh, the common denial of actions, even when observed in cheating in games, haven't caught him in the act, but you don't draw uh, the most needed cards in your first hand two games in a row. Uh, I'm talking to him about it and endeavoring to convey both dangers of being untruthful and benefits of integrity, but I thought him hearing it shared by another would really benefit him. I was hoping you might recall the episode where you went into detail about your son uh, briefly being a suspect of local police and how having an agreement for honesty allowed you to have his back. I don't remember. I mean, you know, unless it's something that is easy to use the search function for. I mean, I've done, you know, almost 2,500 episodes at this point, so... You know, there's a lot of mental files to dig through for me to remember. But what I can do is just talk about it a little bit because I think it's an important subject. So I always told my son, Matthew, that he needed to be honest with me. And that the only way that I would ever be able to trust him when, not if, when a situation arose, because sooner or later it would, sooner or later there would come a point where someone would accuse him of something And I needed to know that I could look at him, and he would either be honest with me that it is true, honest with me that it is partially true, or honest with me that it is totally false. And then he and I could meet that together. So it didn't mean I could get him out of trouble if he actually had done something wrong. But if I knew he was telling me the truth, then I could give 100% of everything I had to being there for him. But if he wouldn't be honest with me about stupid little shit, And in, in Jason's case, like playing a game and cheating at it. If you wouldn't be honest with me about something that simple, then how would it be possible for me to risk my own name, my own integrity, possibly my own money, to defend you in the future when I didn't know you could be honest with me about something like you, you, you pulled cards out of the bottom of the deck? And my son seemed to really get this and really understand this. And on top of it, I, I also always wanted him to understand something. We know when you're lying. We know when you're full of shit. Everything that you think is a new way to get away with something, we already tried it when we were kids. None of this is new. In fact, there's more ways to find out what you're doing now than there was when our parents were around. And by the way, whenever we thought we were getting away with something, We always ended up getting caught, too. And a lot of the things we can look back now and say, I thought I got away with this thing, and we realize mom or dad really knew we were lying and let it slide, but they didn't forget that it happened. So if you pull crap with me, I'll know it. Until you reach a point where you're old enough and you have enough freedom that you can pull things without me knowing it, but that's when this is going to happen. That's when someone's going to come to me and tell me something you supposedly did, and I'm going to need to know I can look at you and trust you. And if you'll be honest with me now, no matter what happens, we'll deal with it with little things now, and later on in life, big things then. Well, he was 17 years old, two police officers came to my house, 
and said he had been accused of breaking into somebody's house, which was just stupid on its face. The claim was that he had driven his car past the house where the police were at and everything was being investigated. And as he had gone by, there were two people in the car, and then he did a U-turn, came back the other way, and the, the passenger ducked down. So a well-meaning citizen jumps in his car and follows him back to our house, which is only about a mile and a half away, pulls up, into our driveway, pulls up behind our driveway and writes down his license plate number and goes and calls the police. So now the police are coming to investigate it. Now what had happened is he took his, uh, his friend, we used to call him Other Matt, because he was also named Matthew Home, and dropped him off and came home. That's all he did. He just went, dropped it. That's the whole thing. That's his entire involvement in any way, shape, or form that this happened. And the, the entire story then is just a fabrication, but based on a reality. There was two people that went by and one person that got back, not because one ducked down. And why would somebody do that? It was stupid. But the police came to my house, explained this to me, and I said, well, um, you can talk to my son. With me present, he's a minor. He's not here right now. And uh, other than that, that's all I can say for you. But I don't think my son had anything to do with this. You know, the kid doesn't get in trouble at all. And they then went to his work, pulled him out into the parking lot, and interrogated him at his place of employment for over an hour and a half as a minor after having promised me they wouldn't. This allowed me to have a very interesting conversation with the chief of police where I told him that a man who had always done everything he could to work with local law enforcement would never, ever trust him or his officers ever again not to lie because they looked me in the eye and lied to me. Fortunately, the person he worked for at the time was friends with one of the responding officers And eventually, that officer came to him and said, what do you think? And the guy said, no. There was nothing there. But it was very necessary for me to stand 100% with my son. Now, when my son looked at me and said, I don't have any idea about this, there wasn't a single point where I thought, is he lying to me? Because we had already gotten through these little things. And I knew the character of my son. And I knew because of the way he had been raised, if he had done something like this. Once he knew the police were involved, he would, have, he would have puked his guts up about it and said, this is what I did, I'm in trouble. If you want your kids to be that way, then be that forthcoming and honest with them. And kids, you want your parents to believe you, then be truthful about the little things. Because for everybody, sooner or later, someday, there will be a big thing. Next up, Stefan uh, sent me this email, and it's pretty cool stuff. It's just something I haven't really used, but I'll give you links to Amazon where you can get it because he gave me links. I just threw them in the show notes. So he says, I'm seeing awesome results from inline irrigation fertilizer injection. I added this spring, which lets you provide nutrients to your entire property continuously. Thought you'd find it very useful also. I'm using this size. It's mixing around a 200 to 1 ratio. It goes up to 2,000. Uh, to one, and it's a three-quarter gallon reserve tank with a little thing that hooks up in line. So when you're running drip irrigation or what have you, it's taking a little bit with it as it goes. He says they also have a permanent install fitting, which basically looks like a three-quarter inch ball valve with a couple pieces of PVC st pipe stuck in it and a couple nipples popped onto it. So this is a permanent install where you can then 
use or not use the inline injection. He said, I'm using this on a low-pressure system with drip line and drip emitters for low-pressure uh, sprinklers. I get massive growth of both vegetables and tree seedlings in my hydroponic setups, and I wanted to mimic some of it in my food forest. I've been pushing low-concentration nutrients and minerals through this thing, which is connected just after my backflow preventer, and the growth has been explosive compared to me walking around with a sprayer every few weeks. Three things. You can't put anything in there that might clog your system. I'd even worry about Garrett juice unless it was filtered. I would agree. There's some, there's some solids in Garrett juice. Uh, it also makes the weeds grow twice as fast if your irrigation hits them. Uh, that's why I think this is really only a good idea for a drip irrigation system where we're putting the nutrient right where we want it. Uh, I don't go crazy calculating exact ratios. I just keep the mix very weak and well within the safe boundaries. Cheers, Stefan. So I do think this is a valid technique, and I think that it really does work the best with drip irrigation. Now, I'll tell you who I think it's most important for. People that don't have a lot of time, because he mentioned about spraying, and my fertility regimen is, you know, you put this on at the beginning, and then you spray every couple weeks for the beginning, and then spray in mid-season, you spray toward the end of the season, and so you have to stick to that schedule. Now, it's not that hard for me to do, because my office window looks out at my land, right? I'm here. I can do as much or as little of it as I want. If it doesn't get done, it's because I got lazy, not because I didn't have time. By spreading out this extra nutrients over a long period of time, a little bit at a time, the plant gets what it needs as it needs it. And once you set, you know, basically when the thing's empty, you fill it back up. And you automate the irrigation and all. Now, the main reason I have not gone to drip irrigation is because my water's so daggone hard. I do have 3,000 gallons of rain catchment. One side got broke this winter. My hope is some of the new systems that I'm put in, I'll be able to tie into that rainwater irrigation, and I probably will use something like this, if not this product, when I do. So, if you'd like to see, you know, you want to know more about doing this type of uh, of uh, fertilization, I do have a link to the exact products that Stefan recommended in the show notes for you today. Next up, Dylan sent me an email, and he has three articles in it. These have all been published in the last week and a half, two weeks. Number one article, I have links to all of them, is in Forbes, and uh, it's called Why Business Skill Sh Schools Are Shutting Down Their MBA Programs. And the upshot was that a lot of them are just not profitable, and they're kind of a way they attract students to their undergraduate and stuff like that. But you know what's really going on there. They're, don't tell me your MBA pro, uh, uh, program is not freaking profitable. I see the money you guys put into them. Uh, I don't believe that they were loss leaders. I believe they become loss leaders slowly over time. And I think when schools claim what they're claiming now, they might even believe it because their profitable pro programs became revenue neutral and then became revenue negative, and they kept maintaining them long enough after that happened, but now they're realizing they can't do that. So we have a lot of schools beginning to just eliminate MBA programs altogether. Now, the next one is... Liberal arts colleges struggle to make a case for themselves. And it gives a whole list of schools that are mainly liberal arts colleges that have sliding enrollment and are struggling to survive. The next article is called Small Private Colleges Struggle, and it's got like six small private colleges that used to do really well that are struggling now and figuring out what to cut and how to stay afloat. Now, 
it, I've, I've covered stuff like this before, but it's been one school with one problem at a time, and then it's another two months before we have another article about it. This is three articles in two weeks, and two of the articles cover about a dozen different schools and make the case of the problems broader. We have gone from a drip to a cluster. When you're looking at an industry and you're evaluating where things are going and how things are, are, are proceeding forward, this is what always happens when a market falls apart. You start with a drip. The canaries in the coal mine start keeling over and the feet go up. Then you start getting clusters. Do you know what comes next? The avalanche, the droves. And so I think that's where we're headed. This is one of those things that I'm like 99% on. I always reserve the right to be wrong. But I'm telling you, the only question when it comes to the radical transformation of education, specifically higher education, but it's definitely going to affect the, the primary schools, secondary schools as well, high school and junior high and grade school. But when it comes to higher education, the point at which a, a, a young person is old enough to make their own decisions It's not whether or not this entire system is going to be radically transformed, but how radically and in which way. That I mean, that that's there is no doubt that the the wheels are about to come off the bus and the bus is about to slide off the freaking the, the freaking bridge into the water. I mean, that's where we're going here. Now, I don't want to keep beating that. Other than I do know that when this all falls apart and it's it's really like everybody's freaking out about it in three or four years. Because then it's not done yet, but people really start to see it happening. And, and it, the droves have started to happen. Uh, and they're starting to come up with emergency programs to save higher education and shit like that. That When I say, I've said this is going to happen, I know what's going to happen. Everybody knows. Everybody always knew. You didn't know anything. Like, I know that's going to happen. Even though I've been told I'm stupid for the last three or four years for talking about it. Um, so it's probably worth mentioning once in a while. But what I actually wanted to use this to do for you is to introduce something to you called praxis. And so there is no value, in my opinion, into to constantly um, talking about a problem unless you're also proposing, enacting, or at least pointing to solutions. I, I think that what I do with TSP is a partial solution to the problem of education. I think that what we do on a weekly basis, if you listen to this show, you know, at least a few episodes a week, You'll learn some new stuff every week, and it'll empower you to figure out what you want in life and how to figure out how to learn about it. So even if you don't learn directly, you learn indirectly. So I think there's a little bit of a solution there, but this is a much bigger problem. We need millions, if not at least hundreds of thousands, of different little tiny solutions and some really big ones too. So what is Praxis? Praxis is a new way to get started in the workforce. It's a one-year program. It starts with a six-month boot camp. You complete that boot camp successfully, which isn't guaranteed that you will. It takes work and it takes effort. I think it's something anybody can do, but you're going to have to want it to get it done. At the end of that six months, they match you with a partnered business that pays a minimum of $15 an hour in a full-time job. In six months, you're working full-time. That Boot, or that, that apprenticeship then lasts six months, and at the end of that six months, you can go look for another job. Possibly that employer uh, then looks to transition and hire you full-time, move you into a higher level. The average first-year income 
after completion of the 12-month program is $50,000 a year. The cost of the school is about $12,000. And by the end of the, the, the one-year program, your internship will have paid you as much, if not a little bit more, than the cost of the program. So instead of paying to go to school for four years and leaving with a debt, it should be possible for anybody serious about this program to come out the other end of it owing little to no money. In fact, it'll be hard to owe money because you either have to pay in full or you pay a down payment and then pay monthly as you're going through the program. So you might have to come up with twelve grand. But let me tell you something. If you want to come up with twelve grand, you can come up with twelve grand. One way or another, you can bust your ass slinging pizzas and come up with twelve grand. And how many people out there have put aside money for their kids and they're thinking they're going to have to spend $80,000 and do 40 of it out of their funds and 40 in loans or whatever and 12 grand. <clears throat> Even if you were stupid and didn't listen to me and insisted on setting up a 529A plan for your kids, this won't qualify for it. Pay the penalties and get money out. Do the down payment and let the kid work them work yourself through it. Let's talk about what this actually is. The the 6-month boot camp You do wherever you are, and you do it online. The six-month internship, if they have a partner near you, they'll try to set you up with them, but you may have to relocate to take that internship. It's a hell of a lot better than going for four years to go to college and coming out owing 80 grand, though, doesn't it? Let me just tell you what the boot camp is. The, this is the outline of the boot camp. It's not everything. Month one, how to win professional opportunities. Start the program by completing exercises and advising sessions that help you create a personal website and a professional social media presence. Learn what it takes to create a valuable and marketable digital footprint in today's world and how to use that footprint to get new opportunities. You will have access to over $1,000 worth of premium WordPress themes for your own websites and any professional projects you choose to take on. Uh, unsure where to get started? You'll be working with an advisor throughout the entire process. Month two, how to learn with projects. Projects are the new resume and the best way to learn professional skills. During month two of boot camp, we will help you complete a professional project around an area of interest that helps you learn skills you'll need on the job and showcase your talents. You will have access to hundreds of examples of real-world projects that have helped people land jobs, get clients, build professional relationships, and more. Month three, how to create on command. The top professionals today all have one thing in common. They are prolific creators. In this module, you'll learn how to create written content that sells and that helps you learn to create every day as a matter of habit. Participants complete uh, daily blogging challenges, work with a writing coach to get published on a major publication and learn to get professional value out of platforms like Quora, LinkedIn, WordPress, and Medium. You'll finish the month with a portfolio of professional content and a thorough understanding of the creative process. You will also begin the apprenticeship placement process during month three. Month four, how to be an idea machine. In month four, you will be busy with Praxis Placement Team honing your email interview and interview skills uh, and your, your professional skills you're acquiring and the ability to communicate what you have to offer as an apprentice. This isn't just practice. You'll be interviewing with real startups about real opportunities And we'll help you nail it for the, to find the best fit. But as it doesn't stop at placement, this module will also guide you through some intense challenges on how to learn more, learn faster, and become an idea machine. The curriculum, coaching, community, and weekly discussions during this month will push you to work out your brain like a muscle. We will help you identify areas of focus and create tangible products to document your learning along the way. 
month five, how to build a value proposition. I've hired people with marketing degrees that can't do this. I'm just saying, I'm off script for a second. Back to the script. First impressions are big. You want to hit the ground running with your apprenticeship. We'll work with you to craft specific skills and projects that will help you create value from day one at your business partner. Even without prior experience or high level of skill, we'll show you how to impress on your first day on the job by demonstrating what you can do with a value proposition. A value proposition is a similar tool to highlight your interests, strengths, and apply them to the real-world business context. It's a great and challenging way to push beyond ideas and learn to utilize your skills in a concrete context. Month six, how to use a software stack. It's not pancakes. A stack is a fancy name for a set of software tools used to get work done. For a typical business, this means tools that handle email, calendars, customer databases, file management, project management, marketing automation, data management, accounting, customer service, and more. You'll be matched with an awesome business for your apprenticeship by month six, getting ready to start work. You'll have a leg up by getting familiar with the, their software stack and learning to create one of your own. We've got some great tools and tips to help you master it. Throughout this month, you'll also be working with advisors and receive guidance on relocating for your apprenticeship experience. And it goes on, and you can check this out, and I highly recommend you do. And I'm going to tell you this. If I was someone responsible for the future of a major university, and I read this, I would be shitting my pants. Actually, I would be developing a program to compete with this, is what I would be doing. But most of them won't. They can't understand. Well, why, why would you go there instead of a prestigious university? Because this teaches you how to get a freaking job and how to do it. They start you interviewing with your prospective uh, apprenticeship employers in the third month. you got three months to go. What do you think you're doing then? You're becoming the person that they're looking for in those additional three months. And then you're, you have a guaranteed job, assuming you do the stuff the way you're supposed to do it, paying $15 an hour for six months completing this program, You're coming out of it with a professional website that features your abilities and your, 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 your projects and what you've been doing and how you got there. A massive amount of skill sets. The ability to sell yourself. The ability to sell for others. And the jobs can be very, very technical. They can be more sales, more marketing. Like This is not specific to one area. These companies they work with have need of all types of people. And then the average person gets a job within a year paying 50 grand a year. So even if you had to borrow the money from your uncle to get through this thing, then you could pay off whatever you owe your uncle in the first year. And now you have the ability not only to, to get that job, but to get any job. This is the person I used to look for. It's like if they came to me and said, Jack, back when Jack had a J-O-B. You're a hiring manager. Well, yes, I am. I'm actually a co-owner co in the company. What can I do for you? Well, if we were to build a program for you and send people to you with six months of training to do a six-month internship with you, what would you want? I'd want that right here, this. This is what I would want. This type of thing. And, okay, yeah, this is what I would want, but somebody else would want something different. This is what I'm trying to say. This agility... And this way of presenting things and this way of channeling energy and channeling education, this can be done hundreds of ways. This is just the beginning. And every time one of these comes out, somebody's going to figure out how to do a little bit better. And you know what's beautiful about this? 
Let's say you go to Praxis. You're a 19-year-old kid. Your mom's been pushing you to go to college. You know you don't want to do that. You saw your, you see your sister with her nose ring as a barista at Starbucks, getting her graduate degree, making 15 bucks an hour at Starbucks, and bitching about her student loans while she takes on more debt. And saying, I don't know what I'm going to do when I get out. I'm going to have to pay this. And you see this, and you do this. And by the time you're 29, like your sister was when you started, you're a, you, You're somewhere, all right? You're not sitting in the same desk you were when you got that first job. You're somewhere looking for people. Where are you going to go get them? Where are you going to go get them? Don't you think you'd go back to Praxis and say, hey, we need some people? And every organization that comes out and does this successfully and has this kind of a direct application of what they're teaching, that's what they're going to get. Alumni. This is See, alumni has fueled the universities, But alumni haven't, hasn't fueled the universities by hiring graduates. Alumni have fueled the universities by becoming successful and donating to their alma mater out of some sordid sense of obligation. And now the return of favor will be, we'd like to do business with you. The world is changing, guys, and thank God for it. Because something needs to be done about this. And when I look at an organization like Praxis, here's what all I can say. If I could go back to when I got out of the Army, just 21 years old, and have something like this put in front of me, I would have done it. I would have done it with such zeal. It wasn't even possible. It wasn't even possible. People were still making you know, posts to message boards when I got out of the Army. Like you called an individual computer to do something online. We didn't have anything approaching the modern Internet yet. We weren't even getting those disks and sticking them in the computer and having them going, you've got mail. We weren't even doing that yet. But if something like this, with that path, would have been presented to me, I would have killed myself to get into it. I'm telling you, and I can't wait to see what's next. This is just one example. And by the way, it's not brand new. It's been around a few years, and uh, they've got some really great success stories to go along with it. And it's nimble. You don't need a giant university to do this. You don't need huge buildings. You don't need big computer labs. No. It's a very lean, nimble organization, and we need more, more, more of these things. Next up, just real quick, I got an email from, let me make sure I give credit to where credit is due. I believe it was Eric. Yes, Eric. NativeSeeds.com, or no, I'm sorry, NativeSeeds.org. So these guys came across my Twitter feed. A wild Texas tomato is what caught my eye. Have a great day, Eric. So I don't even think he really sent this in for the show. But I looked up this website, and I really like it. Again, it's called NativeSeeds.org. They have basically seeds that are highly adapted to the southwestern United States. So seeds that can grow in desert environments. They do a lot of work with indigenous tribes and things like that. Uh, the particular tomato that he mentioned is it was called Wild Texas Cherry Tomato. And I was really excited because I thought maybe it's like a real wild tomato, as in before we started messing with them and changing what they are and doing genetic selection and stuff like that. And it doesn't seem quite that. What it seems like it is is some gardener somewhere that was growing tomatoes, you know, a tomato got shit out by a bird or whatever, and a wild population based on some sort of domestic variety of cherry tomato kind of took off. So these were like, hey, you're walking through the woods and there's just tomatoes reproducing themselves. And so I'm going to order some of those seeds because that sounds cool. And they have a lot of really cool stuff. I am going to approach them. 
about an MSB discount. You know, if you're going to order a couple packs of seeds or something like that, you know, it's going to be one of those things that's nice to have, but it's not going to pay for your membership. I wouldn't wait on me on that, but what you could do to help me, and this is true of anybody that we're looking at for MSB if I mention them, if you order from them, just in the comments of the order or whatever, let them know. We heard about you from Jack at the Survival Podcast. That way, if like a month from that, that point, because I'm going to order some stuff, you know, I'm going to see other sh I'm not going to just go to somebody because they have cool stuff. I'm gonna, it has to come to my house. It has to be shipped. I have to see how the orders get fulfilled. I have to know I can trust them. So I'm going to get some stuff. So let's say I get some stuff. I plant it. I like the vigor, the way it's growing. I like the way they handle customer service and things like that. I'll prob I usually send people like a couple questions, even if I know the answers, just to see what kind of response and how long. Let's say it all works out, and I contact them, and they say, yeah, we've heard from people from this guy, like even if it's three or four people. All of a sudden, like, you're having a conversation, and I'm going, really? You know, you guys are only going to do 15% because, you know, any Seeds does 20, and Eden Brothers does 20, and you might want to think about, you know what I mean? And so that's kind of what I do for you guys. So, but check them out, and uh, if you do order from them, let me know what you've ordered, and let me know your experience, because, you know... If it's a more expensive thing, I, I, I kind of push them to, 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 to work with me a little bit harder uh, and, and try to do it more individually because I don't want to go out and ask you guys to buy something for 500 bucks that I haven't bought myself or whatever. But, you know, if you're going to buy 15 bucks, 10 bucks worth of seeds, um, good crowd, crowd resources, you know, use. And, you know, because if I hear from five or six of y'all, yeah, I ordered, my order came on time, I had a question, they answered it, then I know when I approach them, I'm selling them. I'm not evaluate them anymore. So uh, if you can help out with that, that would be great. Uh, next up, I have a question on doing indoor aquaponics with fish tanks. And there's a little bit of a concern here. This comes from Bobby. He said, hey, Jack, Bobby from New York. I was hoping you could explain in detail the products and processes of building a small in-house aquaponics system. I recently came across three free fish tanks, a 40-gallon breeder, a 20-gallon tank, And a five-gallon tank. My hope is to build a small system out of all three for leafy greens and herbs. Also to show people and kids that come over how aquaponics and gardening works. My idea is to have the 40-gallon on the bottom with fish in it. And above that, make the 20 into a wicking bed for herbs. And the five-gallon into flood and drain for lettuce. I thought this would be really cool to do with clear tanks. So you can see the workings and layers of the system. Any info on pumps, parts, fish, etc. would be great. As this is my first time. This will be in my living room, so I'd like it to be aesthetically pleasing. Thanks, Bobby. There's a problem, Bobby. A big problem. It's almost 100% that your 20-gallon and 5-gallon tank, and maybe your 40, are tempered glass. Why is that a problem? You can't drill it. You can't drill it. It's not safe to drill it. It'll shatter. You can't drill it. Um, if if they're not and they can be drilled, then you can use you can look up. I'm not going to try to explain this on the air. People will get bored, and it, it won't be enough to do it anyway. You can look up how to drill a fish tank on YouTube, and people show you how to do it. What what kind of a a, a cutting bit to use? Keep it wet. Keep it straight. Whatever. And if you do that, then you can drill it. And then you can put a bulkhead in, and then you could make a flood and drain uh, bed um, or a wicking bed. I understand what you're saying about kind of having a window into things, but I, I don't think that it's probably a good idea to make either an ebb and flow or um, a wicking bed out of glass fish tanks. I think it would look cool, but I, I don't think it's the best idea. So what can you do? Well... One thing you could do 
is you could definitely put some ebb and flow in the system using something like uh, concrete mixing trays. A uh, flower pot would probably be best. If you can find a good resin flower pot that is square, they will usually hold up, stand up really well as, a, as an ebb and flow bed. And that could just be fit on the top of a 40, and now we just have water going into it and a bell siphon and dropping down into the 40. So that is probably easy. As far as what pump, I mean, once you size your system out and figure out exactly what you want to do, you can just figure that out. There's tons of decent pumps. Read the reviews on Amazon. If you, if you get to a point where you the easier thing would be if you get to a point where you're like picking a pump or a couple pumps, send me those and I'll tell you like this one's crap, this one's good, whatever. I, I can't really just spit out, hey, use this particular pump. Um, I don't get that wrapped up in it. The little $50 pumps from Home Depot and Lowe's are fine. Um, now, what can we do with those other tanks? Well, if we build a rack system so that 5 and that 20 are up above the 40 in some way, there is a thing uh, called an overflow box. So we can pump water from the bottom tank up to them, basically using the 40 as a sump, and we could raft in those. That would be one way to do it. And another way to do it would be to, the five I would probably, I don't know if I would even include it. Maybe you figure out how you want to lay it out. But let's just, just focus on the 20 for right now. So what we could do is we could set a ebb and flow bed up over the 20. Okay? We pump water from the 40-gallon sump up to the ebb and flow bed that's over the 20. The ebb and flow bed discharges, and you're just going to make sure you have enough freeboard and all. This is all going to work without making a flood on you. It'll discharge into that 20. So it's growing the kind of things that grow in an ebb and flow bed. That would be good for your herbs and maybe uh, maybe a pepper or something. But these are going to be relatively small plants to make this doable because you've got lighting, you need a certain amount of grow space, etc. So now that's dumping into your 20. And if we what we would probably want to do is something like, Build a very similar thing to the air stacks that I built for my 1,200-gallon uh, or my 3,000-gallon uh, pond, which is basically I have a cinder block. Uh, I'm sorry, I have a 5-gallon bucket cut down in half size, a piece of 4-inch pipe into it with some slits in it, and then the air, the water pump just pumps water into that stack. Well, you could do something like a small cup or jar or something filled with concrete or even just pebbles and maybe a piece of two inch or one and a quarter or something like that into it so that when it when it discharges it disturbs the water there but not the whole tank because then we can raft in the rest of the tank so now we've got an ebb and flow bed with with a uh, bell siphon discharging into the 20 into a pipe that's somehow set in the bottom so that when that water hits it doesn't beat up your raft Now we make a nice little raft and some net cuts, so we grow some lettuce up there. But the problem is, if we just keep doing that, eventually that 20-gallon tank's going to overflow all around and make a mess. Well, if we get something called an overflow box, we can create an overflow and set a level for that tank without drilling it. These are well-known in the, in the aquarium space. A lot of people don't want to drill tanks. A lot of people use tanks, like I said, that can't be drilled. So... What this actually is is basically a clever way of doing an aquarium siphon with a dump box on it. So you've got a box, and then you've got a pipe stack that goes over it. That stack is level. In other words, the bottom of the pipe is like a U, and it's, a, it's, it's the exact same length on both sides. 
and that sits. And then we, we set that box, and we put that thing in there, and then we use a little piece of tubing, we stick it up in there, and basically suck the air out and prime it. It'll fill with water. And now what's going to happen is, as that tank fills up, that siphon's going to try to keep the water level on both sides. So it's going to start pulling water out of that tank and into the box that's hanging off the back of the tank. In that tank is a stand-up pipe that's at the same level as that siphon. So every time it pulls water over, it overflows that pipe and goes down to wherever you channel it, in this case back to that 40-gallon tank. And the beauty of this is it really, like once you set it up, it can't fail. If the power goes off and comes back on, it just restarts itself. So it's not something that's being primed with an air pump or something like that. It's just a straight-up aquarium siphon. We, we make these ourselves. For instance, with aquaponics, system, I have two water tanks that are on the same level, and I want them plumbed together, but I don't want to use bulkheads. Just take a piece of PVC pipe, let's say one inch, and two PVC one-inch elbows, and then two more pieces of pipe and make them the same length. You fill it up, and you just turn it upside down and stick it over, and it's an aquarium siphon, and it makes those two tanks stay level. So if water's coming into one, they fill up as though they had a bulkhead in the bottom and were connected. That's all this is in miniature, and then it, the second tank overflows down to where you want it to go. So that's how I would look at doing it, and I know you probably wanted me to say, get this part and this piece. I can't do that with an aquaponic system. I can't do that unless I know exactly what you're building. The only way you can learn this is to do this. This is the praxis of, praxis of aquaponics. You need to figure out what you want this to look like, how you want this to run, and then you need to start piecing it together. Those are your keys, though, to getting this to work. Can you have an overflow box on your 5, an overflow box on your 20, both of them going down into your 40? Sure, you can put all three in. That's fine. But I don't think any of them are going to work really good as wicking beds. And the problem is, since you can't drill those two, I guarantee you there's no way you're going to drill either one of those smaller tanks. I guarantee you they're both tempered glass. All those cheap small tanks are. Um you can't really use the overflow blocks to do these other things because they're not meant to drain the tank to the bottom. They're meant to keep the tank from overflowing. So they only keep the water maybe an inch down from the, from the top. There's some adjustments you can do with them, but you can't get enough water out with them. So that's the approach I would take. As far as fish, okay, a 40-gallon breeder, I'm looking at mine right now, it's full of African cichlids. They'd be fantastic for this. They're not edible. You're not going to grow edible fish. Uh, African cichlids would be great. They're incredibly hardy fish. They look really awesome. I would build, if you want to be aesthetic, because you said aesthetically pre pre pleasing, I would build a male-only tank of like Lake Malawi or Tanganyikan or whatever cichlids. I would get, what I would first do is I would set your tank up, get your system running, and I would throw some cheap goldfish in there. You know, maybe a dozen And then once they're in there for about a month and a half and nobody's dying and everything's kind of stabilized, I would take those guys and set them free, use them for catfish bait, give them away, whatever. And then I would stock my cichlids with all at once. I'd find a good supplier. Uh, Tampa Bay Cichlids is a good place to get them online. They will sell you specifically males or a, a pet store. Get them all about the same size, as young as possible, and, like, pick 10, 15, 20 variety. You can put 20 cichlids in a 40. All males, one of every variety, and throw them in there. They'll all display. They won't fight that much. They won't breed. If that's if you want a tropical approach. If you just want fish in general, 
then goldfish would be great for this, but they're going to outgrow the tank. They, they really are going to outgrow the tank. Uh, you could do a mixed community tank of tropicals. Um, if you want to do a planted tank, which I think would look super awesome, uh, I would recommend that you use a dirt bottom in that 40-gallon. And I would recommend then that you use um, a substrate called EcoComplete. I'll put a link in the show notes for that on top of that dirt and a cheap black gravel top as a cap on top of the EcoComplete because the EcoComplete is made of basalt and it's really loose. And then you plant the shit out of your tank. And then, But I would not do cichlids if you're going to do that because cichlids like to pull plants out and screw stuff up. right? So the reason I suggest cichlids, if it was me, I would want you know, ambient light mostly on the tank, a little bit of illumination of the tank wherever you have an opening or whatever, but I would focus mostly on putting another raft on top of that 40 and doing the same thing with a stack. So since you're not going to have a planted tank then because you're not going to get enough light in there, then cichlids make a lot of sense because you're going to do like a hardscaped tank. So if I can help you further with this, dude, let me know and give me you know, some, more experience, uh, some more questions uh, as you start to figure things out. Um, and you're making decisions, then I can help you, but just giving you a bill of materials for this, I really don't think it's a, a good idea. Uh, I really don't think I can do it right. Uh, next up, Scott says, what's the difference between mash, wash, and wort when it comes to alcohol? Well, good question. Let's, I'll throw one more in for you, must. So let's start out with what is a mash? Um, a mash is when we are extracting our sugars from our grain product. So if we're brewing beer, we'll mash. If we're brewing, uh, basically it is a beer, but we're going to make whiskey out of it or vodka out of it for distilling, we start with a mash. So that's the point that we put, let's say, wheat and barley or whatever malted into corn, depending on what we're making, into a vessel, and we add water, and we heat it up, and we hold it to a certain temperature uh, to create a conversion of starch to sugar, so that we have sugar to ferment. Because if we just throw barley in some water, soak it for a couple hours in cold water, dump the water out, we'll have a really starchy water that won't ferment worth a damn because we need sugar for the yeast to be happy. So mashing is the process by which we get that liquid to be a sugary liquid instead of a starchy liquid. Easiest way to explain it. Uh, a wash... When we take that liquid off of the mash and put it into another vessel, no matter what we're going to do with it, technically at that point, it becomes a wash. Some people would say it becomes a wash when you put yeast in it and it starts to ferment. Okay, In brewing circles where we're making beer, we refer to the wash as a wort. And it's really the same thing, except if we're making a moonshine product, let's say, we take, we come out of our mash turn, we go to our wash, now we just go to our fermenter. When we're doing a beer, we're making a wort, usually it's basically we're taking a wash that we're going to boil and we're going to infuse it with hops. That's really the biggest difference. And the wort is designed to ferment into a final product where the wash is designed to ferment into something that's going to be distilled. Okay? And then 
we get to a point where we have basically a beer that is uncarbonated that we then put into some sort of a bottle or cask or keg and we carbonate it. Or we have a wash that is now fully fermented and is going to become a, a distillate. And then we're going to move that into some sort of a still. We're going to heat it up. We're going to distill it into a distilled product. So that's the difference there. A must is basically a wash if we're making a wine. So when we take grapes and we mash them all up and we extract that juice and maybe maybe we're fermenting on skins, it all depends, or we're doing a fruit wine or whatever, we call it a must. I've often struggled with, so what is it when we make mead? So when we have honey and water and we're pitching our yeast and it's not mead yet, it's just honey and water and yeast getting ready to become mead, is it a must? And that's usually what I refer to it as, as a must. I don't know if there's a technically accurate phrase for it. But let me just say this. It's cool to know all this stuff, but you don't really need to. You need to know the steps and the process to make the thing happen. So back into the words, since we're talking about making alcohol, of the world-famous Charlie Papazian, who has probably done more to get people home-brewing beer than anybody else on planet Earth. Relax. Don't worry. Have a home-brew or some homemade fuel. And just enjoy yourself with it. Uh, next up, got a, a question here. And I tried to put a bunch of extra little quick ones available for you guys today. Um, toward the end, Jay says, Can you give a beginner's overview of buying silver and gold? I finally just pulled the trigger on my first silver purchase. To say the least, I was a bit overwhelmed with the options available. I'm looking toward building up 5% of my net worth over time. And I want to make the right choices. I'm looking at converting a, a 5K... A, a, Converting 5K at a year until I hit my magic number. Uh, also, as your supply grows, I'm curious what considerations you take when storing it, multiple locations, safe deposit. Uh, any info, tips, etc. would be greatly appreciated. Uh, my first trial purchase was from JM Bullion. It was just a few 10-ounce Sunshine Silver Bars, uh, several 2018 1-ounce Silver Eagles. Uh, there are multiple payment options, too. It would be interesting to take on paying the extra 3 or 4% for convenience or if you use Bitcoin, paper check, etc. Thanks for the work you do, Jay in Ohio. Well, Jay, I've done whole shows on this, but let's try to answer some of your questions. One, I think the goal of getting the 5% is pretty good. Doing that at about $5,000 a year is a little aggressive, but depending on you know the number you're trying to hit, it might make a lot of sense. Make sure... If you're going to do this, that there's still plenty of cash-based assets in your savings and retirement, etc. The silver is an adjunct, right? So we're going to make sure, like when people say they're going to be 5% of their net worth, if you're saying your house is your full net worth and you have nothing saved, and you have 5% of your money in a silver and gold, and you don't have any other money, that is not the way to do this. You can make this system that I've put together break if you try Please try to use a modicum of common sense with the number 5% that I give you. Um, as far as how to pay, whatever's most convenient for me, and if it can save me money, great. So paying with Bitcoin, I generally don't buy silver with Bitcoin because I really don't want to spend much Bitcoin right now. Um, I'm still in the process of Bitcoin accumulation. Um, paper check, I have no problem doing that if it saves me money. I'm not in a big hurry to get the silver in my hand. If it makes it take a little longer, I don't care. It's probably the best way to go if you want the absolute rock-bottom price. That said, I don't think that you know 20 years from now, if the dollar dies, I'm going to worry about the fact that I spent 3% more on my silver. 
and I know my kids, because my, my ultimate plan is that this wealth is, you know, if I don't need it to keep myself in a decent facility as an old man or something like that, if I keel over and die in a natural way, uh, and it goes to my grandkids and my kid and stuff, uh, I know they're not going to worry about it. So because I'm not day trading it or something like that where, you know, I've lost my profit to this 2 or 3%, I'm not that concerned about it. As to what to buy, I think that it's nice to have some rounds and bars and some maybe some Canadian and maybe some uh, Australian has some pretty Australia has some pretty cool silver. It's nice to have a little bit of a mix in there of pre pre-65 silver coinage, U.S. currency, but the bulk of your portfolio probably should be built on American silver eagles. Uh, there will, there is, they are as convertible as any form of silver, and they are the most preferred thing for dealers, brokers, etc. to buy from you. They're also eligible for IRAs, but I'm not going to go there because I don't think physical silver belongs in IRAs. But they also do have a, a stipulation that you can sell a certain amount of them every year without paying any income tax on them. I think there's lots of ways to do that anyway. But since they come preloaded with those features, if you want to put it that way, that's where I, I want to go. I think a little bit of gold in your portfolio to balance things out makes sense. Uh, I would look toward the neighborhood of 10% if you're talking about a small dollar value toward the gold side. As you get bigger, sometimes it starts to make sense to put more money into gold. If you look at the two metals, they move very, very much the same. They're not identical, but they tend to move in concert with each other. And one of the pr problems that gold solves for silver is space and allocation. As for storage, the best place for it, in my opinion, is a place that you can put your hands on it. Probably the most secure thing you can do is have a floor safe cord into the foundation of your home if you own your own home. Getting one of those things out without knowing the combination is all but impossible, and they can be put in places where they're almost impossible to find, or if you forgot where you, you put it, it might take you a week to find it. Uh, definitely make sure you have your, your combination backed up and what have you uh, so that you don't ever lose it because getting that thing drilled might cost you more than the silver that's in it. It's a very secure way to keep things. Uh, short of that would be something like a, a fireproof box, Uh, the problem with those is they can be picked up and carried away. So then that needs to go into a highly secure, highly hard to find, highly hard to remove location with additional security. I do not have anything against putting a portion of your silver in a safe deposit box. I would not put all my silver there. One of the things that was written into the Patriot Act was a, a, a safe deposit box was redefined as a financial relationship, and it gives the government more ways to get in there should they feel the need to do so than if it were not a financial relationship. It used to be that a financial relationship with a bank or lending institution was defined as an account. A safe deposit box was storage, so it was not a financial relationship because some old men with white hair decided they wanted access to it if they needed it. They changed what it meant to have a financial relationship by writing it down on a piece of paper. That's how law works. It's not legitimate, but it is enforceable. So you need to think about that. So if you started to build up and you wanted kind of some off-site storage, having a safe deposit box with a few thousand to maybe $10,000 worth of metal in it, depending on what the total, you know, your total net worth and everything is, probably not a terrible idea. One of the things to think about might even be to keep some metal, 
some cash and some other valuable assets in a safe deposit box at a bank that's not local to you, but that you would have a high probability of going. So, for instance, if you lived in Texas and you had a family that you routinely traveled to in Florida, that if something really went bad, you might rely on having that asset available to you there could be very valuable, and most banks won't have a problem with that. You could also look at a private storage. That usually ends up being somewhat prohibitively expensive because I don't necessarily expect that the United States government is going to be raiding my safe deposit box. So those that's like trying to be as basic as I can with this. If you, uh, I'll, what I'll do, I'll check out the website. Um, I have some full shows on this. I'll add a link to the show notes today to uh, one or two episodes where we go in depth on this topic. Last one of the day, dealing with fire ants. Glenn says, hey, Jack, I have fire ants this year all over my garden. I'm here in Georgia, and they're flat-out mean critters. I've searched the website, but get too many hits. Would you give me the show number or uh, so I can find it uh, on how to kill your fire ants organically? Thanks, Jack. I already answered Glenn by uh, email, but I figured this is one this year. The fire ants are insane. They are here everywhere. I'm hearing about this. So the only thing you really need to kill fire ants is orange oil. Uh, and don't buy the nutritional orange oil. You want to buy a, a you know made-for-gardening and landscaping product because it costs less because the stuff's expensive. The good news is a little goes a long way. About two tablespoons of orange oil to a gallon of water will flat-kill fire ants. Now, there's a product I used to recommend called Antifuego. They still make it, but they don't ship it. So you can find it in some garden stores. But here's what it's made of. It's made of horticultural molasses, compost tea, and orange oil. Okay, so it's garret juice with orange oil in it. So if you really want to get the soil conditioning and stuff like that, then you can you know, mix garret juice with using the garret juice concentrate and then add per gallon two, t- two tablespoons, I'm sorry, of orange oil to it. Then you want to, when you pour it on a mound, you don't want to just dump it on that mound so a lot of it runs off. You want to use a watering can uh, with a good, you know, good gentle spread Uh, and then you want to very slowly drench that mound so that it's not only going into the mound itself, but it's going down the tunnels to where the queen is. What happens is orange oil pretty much melts exoskeletons. Ants have exoskeletons. So you have your skeleton inside your body. They have their skeleton outside of your body. Imagine if your skeleton melted. Even if the rest of your body was okay, you'd kind of be done. Well, imagine if your skeleton was more like a Robotech suit and it melted off, exposing all of your innards so your skin was gone and you had no skeleton for rigidity. Yeah, it sucks. I almost feel bad for them, but I don't because they're fire ants. That's the number one way to do this. Now, believe it or not, going on a, a, a organic uh, lawn fertility program using rock minerals, uh, building up beneficial nematodes, and using dry horticultural molasses. You would think spreading dry horticultural molasses would be like ringing the dinner bell for fire ants, but it isn't. What it does is it ups the biological activity of nematodes in the soil, and then what that ends up doing is the fire ants don't like it, and they want to go somewhere else. So you export your fire ant problem to your neighbors. Uh, uh, that's outlined very well on Howard Garrett's website on fire ant prevention. So I'll also include that. So again, you can use orange oil, two tablespoons to the gallon, just straight with water, and it'll kill them. If you want to condition the soil, you can use compost. You can make your own compost tea and then do that. 
right? Uh, or, or you can you, know, you can add liquid molasses. None of this necessary. What happens when you use the full Monty, kind of the anti-fuego formula, which, again, is basically garret juice and, and orange oil, is when you drench that mound, you're leaving those sugars there, so all those dead fire ant corpses, all this, this natural uh, biological activity and soil organisms come in and feed on it, and that conditions the soil. One thing I do have to caution you, If you use a lot of this, it can stunt or even kill some plants. It's not persistent. It's literally gone the next day, but if you've just planted a transplant and you hit it with orange oil, you can knock it back and sometimes stunt and or kill it. Established plants, it usually has no effect on. I'm not going to guarantee you that it has no effect at all on all plants. I would not get it on the surface of the plants. I would avoid that. It's, to, it's not a broad-spectrum thing. We don't put this in a sprayer and go out and spray the whole yard with it. We're going to put it directly on the mounds, and it works like dynamite. Um, it, within, within an hour, usually you kick a mound open, and instead of anger and hatred and rage, you see little to no activity, maybe a couple of survivors stumbling around. Really big mounds, you might have to treat them a second time. And I would wait two or three days, If you see any activity at all, after two or three days, treat that mound again. If you do this and stay on it, you can really knock back the fire ant population on your property. And if you think about it, every time they build a mound and you drench it and kill them, all that energy, all that reproductive energy was just wasted. And that whole colony is gone. Uh, but you definitely want to go slow with it. Again, I'll put some links for you in the show notes on going to a higher level with it if you want to. That brings us to the end of another show. Hope you guys enjoyed today's show. I really enjoyed doing it. I love the varied topics. Remember, to be on a show like this, send me an email, jack at the survivalpodcast.com, jack at the survivalpodcast.com, TSPC in the subject line. So if it goes into the filter, I will be able to dig it out. And I'll try to get you on the air. Bottom line up front. Give me your question or your point or your link to your story in one sentence or less. Then give me your details. You'll be more likely to get on the air. I'll know what you're asking, and so will you. Oh, and if you like this show and you want to support the work we do, you know what you can do. You can do your online shopping at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com, tspaz.com. You'll see all of my reviews and everything I've reviewed on Amazon. If it made it to tspaz, I own it. I spent my money on it, and I would do it again. If I wouldn't do it again, it doesn't get reviewed. Returned or discarded. Uh, today's item I've brought around a few times, but I love this thing. And for $12, bucks, that's actually like 11 and change. It is awesome. It is the King Cooker 12-slot leg and wing grill rack. God, this thing makes chicken in a way that just you just can't do it without it. Because all of your legs or your wings hang, and that means the air heats around them. All of the excess fat drips off, and the skin gets so crispy you won't even miss fried chicken. I still love fried chicken, but, man, you won't miss it as much anyway. This stuff is amazing. There's a lot of different ways that I've used it. One, and one of my favorite, is using the Walker Wood Jamaican jerk seasoning. Massage it really deep in the skin, push some of it up under the skin, let it sit in the refrigerator overnight, and then cook it on the grill with indirect heat. Uh, the other way is my chili garlic wings uh, oil. That stuff is awesome. Everything is in the show notes to be able to do this. Check it out. You'll like it, and there's plenty of other ways to do it. I have a couple tips for you. Uh, you can either use the big aluminum throwaway pans, like if you cook like turkey and stuff in, or you know side dishes for family events, and you just throw the pan away. Or you can use like a sheet pan with um, like a cooling rack, 
and then set the rack in that. And then all your grease gets collected and can be discarded. It doesn't create flare-ups and things like that. Um, you can do that in the oven or on the grill. I can throw three to four of these on my big Weber grill at one time and cook way more chicken than I could otherwise. And then use indirect heat to do that to boot. In an oven, you can usually only fit one. I can only fit one in my oven, and I have a standard size oven. I put the under pan grease collector even when I cook on the grill. Because even though I'm doing indirect heat, And even though everything can drip away down into the grill, what happens if you don't is the next time you light the grill and turn that burner on, you got a grease fire because all that chicken grease is accumulated on there without burning off. So if you put that little grease collector pan there, then you're able to make sure that all that fat and grease doesn't go down in your pan. Uh, so I really recommend that you consider doing it that way and put a little bit of water in it so when the first drops come down, they don't scorch and flare up or whatever. So... You know, a half inch to two inches of water, depending on the pan itself and what have you, how long you're going to cook. But get one of these things, and honestly, this is one of those things, like this is the brand I recommend, it works really good. If you see one in a store and it's it's, it's a good quality product, it is the technique here, not, the, like, King Cooker is the greatest. It is the ability to hang these wings or legs and let that air circulate around them when they cook. It is fantastic, and looking at the picture in my review is making me hungry. With that, let's wrap the show up. We have our song of the day today. We're doing a whole week of cover songs by a band called Boyce Avenue. These are a band uh, out of uh, Florida, I believe, South Florida area. Boyce Avenue is a combination of the, uh, the streets that these guys grew up on. And this is an Elton John song called Your Song. And some people get really kind of out of sorts about new bands covering old music. I don't. I think one of the things is bands like Boyce Avenue, they do original music too, and when they cover this this music to you and me, we don't even think of it as being old, but it's old, guys. We're old. Uh, it brings a whole new group of people to that music. And they've done and they don't they didn't try to remake it into some rap song or something like that. They did it very traditional to the style that Elton John originally did it in, and it's very well done and I really like it. Um, the song itself, I want to tell you a little bit about it. So Elton John used to open for Three Dog Night, and he wrote songs for them. And when he wrote this song, he hadn't made it yet. And they thought he had a real chance to make some of this, so they declined releasing the song and said, no, you wrote it. Actually, Bernie Taupin wrote it, and Elton John brought it to him. They said, we're going we're gonna to not release this, and why don't you release this? And they even helped promote it. And it was one of the things that really propelled Elton John into startup, uh, to stardom. Uh, as far as the song itself, Bernie Taupin, who wrote most of what Elton John's released, wrote this song. He said he could never write this song today. This song was so idealistic as to what love was. He was 17 when he wrote this song, and it's the way he viewed things back then. He said now, you know, he writes songs about divorce and dealing with hard times and stuff like that because uh, love can never be this pure to him again and this simple and this, this easy to understand ever again. I gotta say, for all the money the guy has, then I feel bad for him. I have a, a, a totally different nuanced view of what it is to be in love with somebody today than I did when I was 17. But if I didn't think it was possible to have someone in your life that you would want to spend your entire life with and be willing to do the work to make it happen, I don't know that I'd find life very much worth living. It can be very hard when a relationship ends and it can make us very jaded. But we should all realize that there is always the opportunity to have someone that you kind of feel this way about. Even if you temper it with more wisdom and more experience as you get older. 
With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. It's a little bit funny This feeling inside I'm not one of those who can Easily hide I don't have much money But boy if I did I'd buy a big house where We both could live If I was a sculptor, well then again, no, or a man who makes potions in the traveling show. I, I know it's not much, but it's the best I can do. My gift is my song, and this one's for you. can tell everybody this is a song it may be quite simple but now that it's done I hope you don't mind I hope you don't mind that I put down in words how wonderful life is for your The marks, what a few of the verses, well, they got me quite cross. But the sun's been quite kind while I wrote this song. It's for people like you that keep it turned on. So, excuse me for getting. But these things I do, you see, I've forgotten if they're green or they're blue. Anyway, the thing is, what I really mean, yours are the sweetest eyes I've ever seen. You can tell everybody This is a song It may be quite simple But now that it's done I hope you don't mind I hope you don't mind That I put down in words How wonderful life is While you're in the world I hope you don't mind